Thank you, Ed. Tonight I want to read a passage before we break to go in our classes from Psalm 119. Uh, that's one of those psalms you're probably not going to memorize all the way through. But there's a verse there, 140, that's precious to me. It says, Your word is very pure, O Lord, and therefore your servant loves it. Your word is very pure, O Lord, and therefore your servant loves it. We love the word of our precious good Lord. So, tonight as we move into our various classes, each and every one of them focuses on the word and how it's meaningful to us. So, we're, we're going to dismiss the same way we have in the past. I don't want you to get lost, so we'll be going with our various teachers. Now, Derek, you know, he was sounding kind of puny this morning, and uh, he's gotten worse during the day, so Dr. Leanne has put him to bed. And so, Eric Van Tippel will be leading his class tonight. Eric, if you'll stand, okay? And our Discipleship 101 class, if you'll kind of follow Derek out those doors and over to the Buchanan Room. This is a great background of our discipleship uh, program that we have here at First Baptist, and God is blessing that tremendously. You're a part of that as well, but that Disciples' Cross is uh, inherent there. Uh, Ken Hadley is leading our class about next steps uh, when you're a believer in Christ. How do you get founded real good and off to a good start? Ken's standing over here. Will you stand up and let's follow him out? Doesn't matter which door you go out. He'll find you in the lobby. Okay. Great, great new beginnings class right there. Okay. And... Uh, then Al Haywood is leading one that's very special to me. Uh, it's called Discovering Your Shape for Ministry. Discovering how God has used your spiritual gifts, your heart, your abilities, your personality, and your experiences to make you the unique person that you are. So if you're in shape, let me let you stand. Al's over here. We'll follow him out and around. And you'll have a great discovery here this evening. The rest of you are condemned to be here. We've been, this is our, our welcome to the Bible class. I've had to adjust it a little bit because we've had uh, uh, so many in this one. And I've had to uh, kind of make it a little bit more of a preaching lecture than uh, I had originally planned for it to be and intended it to be. But especially tonight, uh, this is going to be a story, an unfolding history story about how the Bible that you hold in your lap right now came to be. When we left off last time, <clears throat> the Bible had been translated into the most common language of the day. And the most common language of that day was Latin. And who, who can remember the name of that Latin Bible? The Vulgate. Vulgate. And interestingly enough, the reason for that is the Latin word for common or ordinary is, we get the word vulgar from that. Now, we've made it a different meaning entirely than what it was, but it means the common, and it was translated into the common language of the day. Well, that was fine for when it was translated, and it stood as the Bible of the church for nearly a thousand years. But what I want to do now is to take you through the history of the Bible that you hold in your hand, your English Bible, okay? We've talked about Latin, we've talked about Greek, we've talked about Hebrew and Aramaic. But the Bible that you hold in your hand, and if you're going to go buy one, when you go to the store looking for one, uh, how do I know what Bible 
to choose and how did it come to be. So we're going to be talking tonight about how the English translations came to us and we're going to move that right up to the Bible that we hold uh, in our lap more than likely here uh, tonight. Now remember, the Bible was not assembled the way we have it here today. None of these were assembled in a way that we had Genesis all the way to Revelation and all packed up and bound in a single volume. This just really had not happened yet. There were various scrolls or papyri that were copied and passed on until it was put together in the Latin Vulgate. That was the first one that was printed, but that was not the English Bible. We want to get to the English Bible. So, I'm going to, let's see if I can remember how to operate this, boys. Let's see. On the side, that's right. Now I remember. Thank you. Whoop. Yeah, boy, it works good, don't it? All right. Yeah, there you go. Now, that's maybe a little small for you to read, but I'm going to interpret it as we go. A monk and scholar named Bede was the first one to begin the process of translating uh, the ancient Hebrew and Greek scriptures into the English language, Okay. And it was a very, very beginning, very partial kind uh, of, of a scripture. He did this on his own. It was in the early 700s, around 735 A.D. He was quite a scholar and did a really good work in the process. But this was something that was becoming more and more hated from the very beginning. We'll get to that in a minute. The, how we got our English uh, Bibles is a very fiery, but a very bloody story and I have to tell you that here tonight. The first person who really gave some scholarly direction was actually Alfred the Great, the King of Wessex and that was in the latter part of the 1800s to the very early 1900s, 1901. And again this was a few portions of Psalms, Exodus and the book of Acts translated from the ancient scriptures into English. But then something happened in 1066 AD That was the Norman invasion of uh, uh, Great Britain. And at that point, French became the official language. Maybe you didn't know that, but in Great Britain, there was a period of time uh, between uh, the 1066 and then up until the mid-1300s where Great Britain was under the domain of France and French was the, the language. So the English language was disdained And absolutely, there was no translating going on during that period of time. What began to emerge, and it emerged more among the common people, just the people that worked in the shops and so on and so forth, was a type of English that we called Middle English. How many of you had to read in school, I hope none of you, but how many of you had to read in school some of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales? Oh, a bunch of you. Okay. That is Middle English, okay? Most of you had a great deal of difficulty reading it. It put me to sleep every night. I really had difficulty grasping uh, that, that the Middle English, the way the letters were written and the pronunciations and so on. But Middle English had emerged. And in 1382, the very first complete Genesis all the way through uh, Revelation, English Bible was translated. Now, it wasn't bound in one volume, but all of the books were translated, and that's often referred to as the Wycliffe Bible. Whoops, let me count it. There, that's, there's this picture there, okay? There's Wycliffe, and 
got to go to the next page to really hear about him. Uh, just about the time he was doing his work, there was a lot of problems within the Catholic Church. Let me tell you, if you read church history, you'll find that there were some really, really dark days in the history of the church. Okay? And I don't say that in a negative way. I don't say that in a way of accusing anybody or whatever. But it's just the reality. And these were in some of those days. John Wycliffe uh, made quite an impression on the Catholic Church. And it caused him no small problems in, in the process. Uh, he was born on a sheep farm 200 miles outside of London. Uh, but he was very well educated. He started in, in 1346. But there were various periods of the Black Death in London at the time. So he would leave when the sickness was at its worst and then return. So he didn't finish his education until 1374. He became a rector of... Um, uh, Got a pastorate, if you please. But he was finding more and more things that he concerned him about the Holy Catholic Church. This is before the Reformation. This is some of the events that led up later to the Protestant uh, Reformation. So, when he was passed over a couple of times for some, him being the very obvious choice to move on to some other large parishes, he began to write about the criticisms that he had of uh, the Holy Catholic Church. Now, needless to say, that got him in no small amount of trouble. Uh, long and the short of it is, after several uh, edicts from the Pope and several banters back and forth, he was placed under house arrest. And he could continue in his small parish, but he had to do so under, uh, under watchful guard all the time. But he challenged the Catholic Church in their sale of indulgences. Okay? He says... It's plain to me that our prelates in granting indulgences do commonly blaspheme the very wisdom of God. He repudiated the concept of a confessional, you know, where you would go and, and do confessions. Uh, he starkly stood against this. He said private confession was not ordered by Christ, nor was it used by the apostles. And one of the things that really landed him in so much trouble was something that landed Martin Luther in trouble a little later, speaking that that faith was something that what was the means for salvation and not any of the ordinances. Wycliffe wrote, Trust wholly in Christ, rely altogether on his sufferings, and beware of seeking to be justified by any other means of righteousness. He believed ardently that every believer should be able to read the Word of God for himself. And his argument was this, he said, Englishmen learn Christ's law best in English. Moses heard God's law in his own tongue. The disciples heard their, uh, the gospel in their own tongue. And so should we Englishmen. So he began this massive translation. He had some help, but it was primarily him. He began this massive translation from the best uh, documents that he could get and coming from the Latin Vulgate into the English. <clears throat> Now, he died just a short period of time before uh, he was excommunicated. Uh, the Catholic Church still uh, hated what he was doing so much, and he started a snowball rolling that they could not stop, to where 43 years after he had died, his remains were dug up and burned, and his ashes scattered to the wind. 
And that was, that was you know, by order of the Pope at that time. That was in 1408. So still, there was a few efforts to try to bring all of the scriptures together. But again, once you had them all translated, you didn't have them in a common volume. But then, in the mid-1400s, in 1455, an incredible, incredible invention came on the scene. And that was the printing press. Gutenberg's printing press. By up to this time, it would take scholars uh, a year to two years to meticulously uh, transl- uh, to just copy, just copy the, the scriptures. Once the printing press was uh, invented, then you could reproduce that page time after time after time after time again. And so now there was a means by which you could take all of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and put it in one volume like what we have here tonight. The first thing that he came off of the printing press, Gutenberg's printing press, was a copy of the Latin Vulgate. That was okay for him to print at that time. But the printing press became a great threat to the Holy Catholic Church because not only about the Bibles, but all of the things that were being written that was challenging their authority could be mass-produced. And that became a great, great difficulty. But it also opened up the means by which the Word of God could go into many different languages. Okay? And that's the Gutenberg Bible. Over here to the right, a man's name is Erasmus. E-R-A-S-M-U-S. In 1516, a priest and great Greek scholar named Erasmus published a uh, a new Greek edition of the Scriptures. What did he do? He went back to the Hebrews... And he created a new Greek translation, okay? By this time, Greek was not a world language, but the Greek language was still spoken in certain parts of the world. And that being where his roots were, that was his translation. And so, wait, wait, I thought he was talking about an English Bible. Hold on tight. That became a standard and a launching point for several of our uh, English Bibles. You also probably know in... uh, it, there's a Rasmus picture right there, or a lot of him, that Martin Luther was coming on the field about this time too. Martin Luther was a Catholic monk, and he had a passion for the Word of God. He was also deeply troubled about the things that he saw within the Roman Catholic Church that, that, that hurt him deeply. And he began to challenge the authorities of the Roman Catholic Church. And he, uh, he nailed his his 95 theses to the door of the church in Worms, Germany, challenging the church in so many ways. Well, Martin Luther was also passionate about having the Bible from Latin into German. That was where he was from. That was the language of his day. And so he meticulously began his translation. Well, we're talking about English, yes. But again, this movement was going on throughout all of the known world, trying to get the Word of God in the language that people could understand, their heart language. Enter a man by the name of William Tyndall. That's here in the middle. William Tyndall was a great Oxford scholar, and he uh, was the first one who really accomplished a lot of the things that we're talking about that led to the Bible we have in our lap. He translated the New Testament from 
Erasmus's more corrected Greek study, he translated that then into Middle English. Okay? And from very soon he came under persecution for that. And so what did he do? He fled. He fled Britain. Where did he go? He went to Germany. He figured that if, if Martin Luther could successfully be doing these translatings into, into German, he would be safe there. And so he would work in Germany. He would make his translations of portions of the Bible and smuggle them into Great Britain, packed in uh, uh, cotton, uh, packed in bales of cotton, packed in uh, corn, anything he could wrap it up to smuggle these Bibles in because they were outlawed in Great Britain. <clears throat> Still very much under the control of, of Catholicism at the time. Uh, his devotion for getting the word out, he was later arrested. He tried to come back to Great Britain for a short period of time. He was arrested. They tied him to the stake, strangled him until he was nearly dead, and set him on fire and burned him alive. This has become a regular pattern for disposing of those who dared to translate the Word of God into the language of the day. But his translation, Tyndall's translation, is what formed the real backbone for the King James Version that we, many of us, hold in our lap even tonight. The first complete English Bible that we have that was bound from Kiver to Kiver, is actually known as the Coverdale Bible, okay? The Coverdale Bible from 1535. Now, a lot of things happen in just a few years of one another here, so stay with me. Uh, Miles Coverdale uh, translated uh, the uh, scriptures into English, really with the endorsement and encouragement of Anne Boleyn. Anne was one of the many wives of Henry VIII. And she had his, his blessing. He actually did this with a lot of her encouragement. And but two years later, two years later was the Matthews Bible. You see that one in the middle. The Matthews Bible actually was the work of Tyndall, but it was completed by a man named John Rogers. John Rogers. It, the, the Bible is... It, it's, it's under a pseudonym of Thomas Matthew. That's why it's called the Matthew's Bible. But John Rogers completed the work of Tyndall to get this Bible complete and in the hands of the English people. Interestingly enough, uh, John Rogers is one of the descendants of our very own Rita Hooper right here within our church family. So she's done a great deal of research there, and if you want to know more about that, she can sure tell you that. This is the first Bible, the Matthew Bible, that was printed with a king's endorsement, 1537. And it did have the, the endorsement of the king to do, not like the authorized version of the 1611. We'll be getting up to that in just a little bit. Two years on the heels of it, was this 1539, the Great Bible, or the Geneva Bible, okay? The Geneva Bible was uh, done primarily by Archbishop Thomas Kramer under Henry VIII. He gave him uh, uh, the order to where there could be a Bible translated that could be read aloud in all of the churches of Great Britain. And so leaning heavily on the work of 
uh, Coverdale, Miles Coverdale, and the Matthew Bible, which was basically Tyndall and Rogers together. The Great Bible or the Geneva Bible was written. Now, what happened as it was published on these new printing presses? It was not allowed to be in the hands of common people. These Bibles were literally chained to the pulpits in the churches of England because they still believed that the common man was too ignorant to understand the Word of God and it had to be interpreted by the priest or the rector or whatever. And so this was called the chained Bible because it was chained to the pulpits worldwide. Well, about this time, uh, a great revolt was beginning to happen within uh, the Catholic Church. People like Martin Luther, Zwingli, so many others who were trying their best to bring reform to the Catholic Church caused a great split. And we know that commonly today as the Protestant Reformation. But that caused a very bloody period of time uh, to happen. Uh, many of you are probably aware of Queen Mary of England. Many of us knew her as Bloody Mary. Uh, she uh, put execution orders out on um, John Rogers, uh, had him and 300 other associates mass executed, burned at the stake. Again, the Bible you hold in your hand is there because of the passion of men and women who would give their very lives for you to have it in the language that you have there today. And these were just a few. This Geneva Bible is actually the Bible of Shakespeare. This is the one that, that he would have read. And that, uh, that his, his you can, as you read Shakespeare and you read the Geneva Bible, you hear the same language and the same terms rolling together. So if you had to read Shakespeare when you were in school, that's what it's like reading the Geneva Bible. <clears throat> this is the Bible also that the pilgrims brought with them when they came here to the continent. It was the Geneva Bible that the pilgrims brought with them here. Speaking of religious groups like the, the pilgrims, it was actually the Puritans, another group that were really part of the Church of England but were wanting to reform even it, who gave rise to uh, the eventual writing of a King James Bible. We're getting closer to where we need to be. King James I of England... Okay, uh, Queen Mary, Geneva Bible, uh, there it is. King James I, uh, he commissioned 54 scholars to use the Latin Vulgate, but go as far back with as many of the ancient uh, manuscripts as they could, and to have an authorized Bible for the Church of England. Okay, had, by this time, the Church of England had split from the Holy Catholic Church, and it was... It was its own entity. And so they needed their own Bible there. And so he commissioned the King James Version. These translators uh, worked uh, for the period of, of several years. And they, they brought uh, to him the 1611 King James Bible. That's not the King James Bible you have in your lap. Okay? It's not. Uh, you probably would not be able to read the 1611. I don't know how well you can see this, but this is the 23rd Psalm. Uh, the letters are, are kind of strange. The uh, S's look like F's. 
it's the, it, again, is a style of English that was very common in 1611, but it was going out. Middle English was disappearing. And so, though the 1611 Bible was authorized by the king, he never, by the way, put his final authority on that. He never uh, put his, his final royal approval on the 1611. It was rewritten several times in the first several years, and then it, it anchored itself pretty well until the late 1700s. In the 1700s, it was rewritten, or not rewritten, it was retranslated, in a way that brings it into the King James that you have in your lap right now. That's really not a 1611. If you'll carefully read the preface in that Bible that you've got there, it'll tell you that it was reworked in 1769 after dozens of rewrites. That's the beloved King James Bible we hold in our hands. And that's where the, uh, the language and also the lettering looks entirely different. Well... That gets us to the King James, but when you go to the bookstore, boy, you find all kinds of different uh, Bibles that you can choose from. Uh, how do we wade through some of those? Well, let me take a few minutes tonight and walk through some of these. The King James Bible has served, um, and continues to serve, the 1769 version of it, many, many churches, many people very comfortably, okay? But let me tell you a little bit about the work that went on with the King James Bible that makes it excellent. Now, it's not the only one, but it makes it excellent. Remember I told you there were various translation methods, okay? And, and among all the translations, the two biggest diversions is one is a word-for-word -word translation, okay? And that word-for-word -word from one language to the other might make a little bit awkward English, but it is a word-for-word -word translation. Then the other one is a thought-by-thought -thought translation, okay? This is where you take the best understanding you have of the culture of that day and you put it in the best understanding you have of the culture today. Why do we need continued translations? Two things I want to share with you. One, our language keeps changing. Have you noticed that? I mean, just in 20, 30, 40 years... Our language has greatly changed. Words that used to mean one thing mean something very different now, okay? Um, I, I was, was looking at some old cartoons that, that we had, and I was playing it for some of for my grandkids, and they had some of the old Flintstones, uh, you know, cartoons. You remember the Flintstone, Fred Flintstone, Barney Rubble and such? Remember that, that the opening song, it very gets, gets to the end of it, and it says, and they'll have a gay old time. That means something different now than it did then, all right? And that happens in most of our lifetime right here. So our language continues to be changing. It's a dynamic and living thing. And so our idioms and such, it's, they're constantly uh, changing. The other thing is we continue to find older and older and older manuscripts, that go further back to where those originals were. So every time we find a treasure trove of those newer, uh, uh, older, actually newly discovered, but older and earlier translations, scholars get a hold of those and they begin to pour over those. Are there any significant differences between this one that was found that was maybe 30 years after the original and this one I've got here that was 50 years after the original? What we find is 
very, 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 very little differences. Where we find differences is in spelling of some words. There's multiple names of some cities. Okay? Some cities were, were, were known, well, you know that in, in just reading in, in, uh, in your own Bible, that the cities uh, in Israel to the north and Judah and, and the south, uh, those in the south had a different name for those cities in the north than they did. Okay? So, just city names, spellings, those were the primary differences. But we do find more and more about the culture of the ancient manuscripts. Now look, if you're holding your 1769 copy of the King James Bible in your lap, what you're doing there is you're reaching back to an ancient culture, seeking to interpret it into old English, and then apply it to where we are today. You're spanning three huge time zones in the process of doing that. And so these newer translations are basically since trying to keep the integrity of the oldest manuscripts, but reach into the more modern English and bring these two together in a good way. Now remember there are two different kinds. There's the very word for word and there's the thought by thought. The first one I want to talk to you about is one that you hear me reading from uh, every Sunday, and that's referred to as the New King James, okay? The New King James. The New King James is uh, uh, done by Thomas Nelson, and as a matter of fact, when I was in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, I, I did some work for them, not in terms of translating, but in terms of proofing some of their, uh, their books that they did. Great publishing house, wonderful publishing house, but they commissioned a task of uh, over a hundred people to take the King James that we loved, but to update the language enough that the these and thous and, and, and hitherto's and all those kind of things would be taken out and put a little more modern language into it. Not to, to lose any line of the King James Bible, but to make it a little more readable and a little more understandable. Okay? I've used this for a long time, but I specifically chose to use it here because when I came, there were those who were really attached to the King James Bible and they didn't want big changes. And I said, okay, this is a very little change and one thing that has been quite palpable. And it has served for a good long time and continues to be uh, a good, uh, wonderful translation. It's a word-by-word -word translation that is, keeps the integrity of the old uh, verses that we're so used to uh, memorizing and such in our heads. The next one that kind of came on the scene was slow to emerge, starting in the mid-1800s, but really came to fruition in the mid-1900s, and that's the New American Standard Bible, okay? The NASB, New American Standard Bible. Published in uh, the New Testament in 1963, the Old Testament uh, added to that in 1971. Again, a very rigid, verbal, word-for-word -word translation into what then had become a more modern English. That was the efforts. Another one, and one that, that you hear Derek read from a great deal, was the English Standard Version, or the ESV. Wonderful, wonderful translation. I like it an awful lot myself. Again, its strength is as a combination of this word for word, but not quite a thought by thought, more of a blending of the two together. And again, using a great deal of modern uh, colloquialism and use of words that's, that's there. 
I'll tell you one that has not been as popular and has not been as well accepted, especially among, whoops, I'm getting behind right here, uh, among some of our uh, uh, evangelical churches for, for uh, I get caught up where you're supposed to be there, Fred. There you go. <laughs> Is the New International Version. The NIV was one of the newest ones that went to a thought-by-thought thought kind of translation. And I'm not saying that because there's anything necessarily wrong about that. What I am saying is that there were some compromises made there that the more evangelical community were not really ready to take. It didn't help that a few uh, years later that they uh, came public that they were going to do a, a new version of the NIV that was going to be gender neutral. To take, you know, the God is masculine, to take the he's out and, and make it more gender neutral. Well, that turned the evangelical community against them uh, quite spitefully. They shelved that idea, but then turned back around and brought it out yet again uh, a little later. One that's close to home and close to my heart uh, is the Holman Christian Standard Bible. The Holman Christian Standard Bible. It was released in 2004, okay, just right before uh, I, I came here as your pastor. And Again, it is uh, uh, very faithful to being a word by word. But again, our language has changed in just a matter of a couple of decades. Uh, this one, the title has changed of it now. It's just simply the Christian Standard Bible or the CSV now. Holman uh, were the ones, the publishing house that, that put this out. We had a great deal of Southern Baptist scholars on the committee that translated the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, a lot of it was done up in Nashville. And it was extremely done, uh, extremely well done. And some of our uh, Southern Baptist people that were on there uh, were champions uh, among, among uh, Southern Baptists on a national letter. So uh, around uh, Nashville, where a lot of it was done, the uh, HCSB, we changed from Holman Christian Standard Bible to Hardcore Southern Baptist. Okay, it does represent us well, though you don't want to defend any particular denomination in a translation process. But that is another very, very good, uh, very, very good translation. Let me move to a different kind, and, and this is, um, i got to take you back a little ways uh, first to the mid-1970s. Uh, Kenneth Taylor, who worked at uh, Tyndall Publishing Company, but also was a, a Greek and Hebrew scholar that worked on some of our various uh, seminary campuses. Uh, he had two young daughters, and they very, very much uh, wanted to be able to read the Bible in a way that was very easy and entertaining for them. So Kenneth began to translate the scriptures into not a translation as much as to paraphrase them in a way that would catch his daughter's attention. And so he uh, began to doing this work, and then his uh, publishing house, house picked it up, and they began to publish what was called the Living Bible. How many of you are familiar with the Living Bible? Okay, it was printed in a, a green uh, binder. Okay, uh, it was the first of several paraphrases that have come along after that. A paraphrase, remember, it's not either a word by word or a thought by thought. This is more taking the whole general concept of a passage and making it very palatable in today's vernacular. And so he did this for his daughters, okay? 
He did this for his daughters. But it caught on in such a wonderful way that so many people began uh, to, to buy it. And then he, he regretted what he did. And so he, uh, he appealed uh, even then <clears throat> to uh, Tyndall, uh, if they would, to actually do a translation not based on the Living Bible, but to do a translation that would be the easiest to understand in the English vernacular. And so the result of that was the New Living Bible, or the New Living Version. Uh, this is one I particularly love. This is one I'm reading for pleasure and joy and devotional reading. I, I read from, from the New Living Version. It's a wonderful translation. It's one that I can recommend to you. This whole thing about paraphrasing began to get a little bit out of hand, though. <laughs> uh, and uh, about early 2000s, 2002, I think it was, uh, Eugene Peterson uh, did his own paraphrase of the Bible, and it's, it's quite popular with some people today. It's called The Message. The Message. Uh, it is a paraphrase. He will tell you up front, this is not a translation of the Bible. <laughs> It is a paraphrase. So as long as you know it's a paraphrase and use it as a paraphrase, I'm okay with that. <laughs> All right? But what it does, it, 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 there's every now and then there's some passages in it. I really like the way that, uh, that Gene, you know, tailored that story. <clears throat> but it won't sound anything like any Bible that you're used to reading. So let's go back. The Bible that you have in your hand, the bloodbath finally began to come to an end in the mid-1600s. As far as translating into the English was concerned. The bloodbath continues worldwide. Many companies, many agencies, many Bible societies continue along with the same passion that all of the people we've talked about, Wycliffe and Tyndall and Rogers and all of these, that every man deserves to have the Word of God in his own heart language. And so, translators continue to work. We, we have sufficient Bibles here in our English. But translators continue to work to get the Word of God into the heart language of every person on the planet. But that is also a very bloody task. Just a couple of weeks ago, some more smugglers were caught smuggling Bibles from China, not, you know, into North Korea. And they were executed. There are still countries that outlaw the Word of God, it's a threat. Because it talks about a citizenship that is not of this world. It talks about an allegiance that is not of this world. It talks about a freedom that many totalitarian governments want to strangle out of people. The Bible is a very dangerous book in some countries around the world. And so I would ask you to pray. Based on the fact that you have your very own copy of a beloved Word of God to your heart that you can read and that you can enjoy and that you can benefit from day in and day out. So many people don't have this. But they deserve it.
And the same fire that caused all of these people I've talked about tonight and so many, many others to risk their lives and many times give their lives so that people may know the Word of God in their own heart language. That spirit continues to live. But it continues to be dangerous. It continues to be dangerous. Some of the most brave men and women I know are those that do whatever they can to smuggle the Word of God into countries where it's forbidden. You may be familiar with Voice of the Martyrs. You can go on their website and you'll see regularly updates of where, uh, how the Bibles have been moved from here to there and how they've been protected. I'll tell you about one particular village. <clears throat> when they finally received their copy of the Bible, they were so afraid that it would be stolen. They were so afraid that they would be without God's Word that they literally tore the Bible apart. And they gave Genesis to one person. And Exodus to one person. And Leviticus to another. Matthew. Mark. And it was not just so those people could take it and hide it. They memorized it. They memorized the book that was theirs to carry. And so when the church gathered, the Word of God was there. And when someone needed to read from Ezekiel, someone would stand and they would quote what they memorized from Ezekiel. And that the written page letters were passed down in that family from generation to generation to where always there would be a book of Daniel in that church. What was it the psalmist said that I read a few moments ago? Your words are pure, O God. How I love your word. I wish you could, could see, maybe some of you have seen, but just this last week in one of our devotions and staff, we were hearing the testimony of a woman in Africa that she so longed for the Word that she walked barefoot four hours every day to get to a place where the Bible was taught and read. And four hours back home. Every day. Every day. To avail herself. Because they didn't have a Bible. In her land, village. And the story was told about how. The, the Bibles were brought to them. A small box of Bibles. And she was the first one to receive one. I wish you could see that picture of her. Holding it to her heart. And cherishing the gift that it was to her. And see the pictures of her as she opened her Bible and as read the Word and as the tears rolled down her face. Brothers and sisters, please, 
let's not take this word for granted. We are blessed here to be able to go go down to Walmart, <laughs> buy your Bible, go anywhere and get one. We give them away here. Okay. Can I tell you one more story and then I'm done? Last Wednesday, we had a phenomenal opportunity. Through Jennifer Gibson, one of our dear members in our church family, uh, last year she cultivated a relationship <clears throat> with Denmark. And she and a couple of other teachers and such went over there and, and worked out an exchange program. Well, this, this last Wednesday, uh, I think it was 14, maybe it was 15, uh, of those Danish kids, high school students, were here with two teachers uh, to visit uh, here in the south. And they came here. Now, Denmark is not uh, uh, violently negative to the Bible. It's not like that. It's just, it, it is a non-Christian country. They're, for the most part, uh, atheist or, you know, just don't care, all right? And so Jennifer, she's a sharp lady. She, she said, you want to know about the culture of Georgia? Well, part of our culture is our faith. And so we had them here Wednesday night. We fed them ham and taters and gravy and green beans. They loved it. They loved it. They thought that was the best stuff there was. And then you know what? She took them down here, and Goody shared the gospel, and just poured out the gospel, poured out his heart to all of those kids like he does every week, but to these Danish kids that were there, and they hung on every word, and they wanted to know more, and the two teachers, one of them met with Jennifer the next day and says, I want to know more about this. They left everyone that wanted one with a Bible in their hand. This is who we are. This is why we get up in the morning. This is God's Word without any mixture of error. Our sole authority on all matters of belief and behavior. Please cherish your Bible. I'm not asking you to go out and buy about 50 of them just to have around. What I would encourage you to do is hide it right here. Hide it right here in your heart. Nobody can ever take it away from you there. You don't have to have a written copy with you. It's always right there with you. I love thy word, O Lord. I shared with our our staff, a couple of weeks ago, you probably know the story, but there was a man who just came to faith in Christ. He was an explosives expert working with a mining company. And a very tragic accident, some of it blew up in his face. He was blind, mostly deafened from it. But he had just learned to love the Word of God. And so he bewailed his faith. What, what am I to do? His hands were damaged so bad, he couldn't read Braille. Somebody told him they'd heard of someone in a similar situation that had ordered a Braille Bible. 
and she was able to feel the little bumps on her lips. And so she ordered, he ordered a Braille Bible, passed it over his lips, but they too were just too covered with scars. He couldn't distinguish one bump from the other. And so in tears, he was about to give the Bible back. But he thought before he did, he would just kiss it. And his tongue touched the bumps. And he found he could read his, take his tongue down the line and feel the Braille. And he learned to read Braille with his tongue. He said, I have tasted the Word of God and it is good. Don't we dare take for granted the Bible we hold in our lap. Let's thank God for it. Father God, I want to thank You for Your Word. I want to thank You, Lord, how You've protected it from those earliest days where it was spoken right from your heart to the prophet and then it was kept through all of that time of oral transmission how so much of it was written down how it made its way in three languages over three continents over oh gosh you watched over that word and the passion you've given your people to know the word and to have it in their language to where they can be set free Lord, that passion has inspired martyrs for years. Lord, may it inspire us to pick up that word first thing in the morning. Delve deeply into your heart. Sense your presence in your word. And be transformed for the day you put before us. May we hide it in our heart where we have it with us all day long. May we sing out with the psalmist, I love your word, O God. We pray to that end in Christ's name. Amen.